Welcome everyone to the second God Talk of the year for Queen Anne Lutheran Church. I'm its pastor, Dan Peterson. We welcome all of you here. It's great to see both familiar and unfamiliar faces. And we are very happy to welcome Professor Thomas Orr, who directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. He is a theologian, a philosopher, and a scholar of multidisciplinary studies, the author or editor, and this just blows my mind, of over 25 books. Now, for anybody who's written a lengthy manuscript, that's to me nothing short of miraculous. So clearly this theologian believes in miracles. Uh, he's performed one of them. <laughs> um, but uh, And I've had the pleasure to just start reading his follow-up to the book that will be the center of our discussion today, God Can't. It's called God Can't Q&A, and it answers a lot of the questions that Tom had a, a chance to address briefly in the book, but here he goes really more in depth. So I already am enjoying it, and I recommend that, that book to others. Uh, he is known for his contributions to research on love, science, religion, open and relational theology, which he may say more about in our discussion today, as well as the problem of suffering and the implications of freedom for transformational uh, relationships. We are very privileged to have with us uh, Dr. Thomas J. Orr. Welcome to this forum. Thanks so much, Dan, for the invitation and for that uh, nice introduction. And thanks to all of you for uh, joining in on this discussion. I think Lee hit it right on the head a few minutes ago. We're going to be talking about uh, one of the biggest, deepest problems that people who believe in God uh, face. In fact, if polling is correct, the problem we're going to talk about today, the problem of evil, it's the number one reason why atheists say they can't believe in God. And I suspect, even though I don't have any polling to support what I'm about to say, I suspect it's the number one question that those of us who do believe in God have. And the question is basically this. If there is a God, if this God is loving, and not just sometimes, but loves everyone all the time, perfectly loving, and if this God is powerful, then why doesn't a loving and powerful God prevent the unnecessary suffering, the pointless pain, what I like to call the genuine evils of the world? And we can talk evils like in the macro sense, like you know, genocide, holocaust, uh, natural disasters that kill people. We can talk evil in the more personal sense. Maybe some of you have gone through incredible difficulties in your life. Maybe you're, uh, you've gone through pain and suffering because of an illness, or you've been in a, a tragic accident, or you've, you're the victim, you're a survivor of abuse. Those kinds of questions that we want to face today are the questions of why a loving God didn't stop what happened to you and so many people in the world. Now, I suspect that most of you have heard some possible answers to those, to those kinds of questions. And today I'm going to incorporate aspects or portions of a lot of the answers you've probably heard, but I've come to believe that the quote, usual answers are unsatisfying. At least they are to me. Maybe some of you here today are satisfied with the usual answers. I'm not. I'm going to be proposing a very different way, at least different to most people, 
a very different way to think about God and God's relation to the genuine evils of the world. And as Dan mentioned, uh, this is kind of laid out in very accessible language in this book, God Can't. And I think maybe to get things rolling this morning, I'll just lay out the five ideas in this book, God Can't, and then we'll just have a massive discussion because that's what I enjoy most, hearing your thoughts, hearing your uh, criticisms or your insights. So here we go. The five ideas that I think actually give a satisfying answer to the question of why a loving and powerful God doesn't prevent or stop the pointless pain and genuine evils of the world. Point number one, and probably the biggest one, I think God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. In other words, God acting alone can't stop not only the evils done by people using their free will wrongly, but the natural disasters, the diseases, the uh, miscarriages, the auto accidents, whatever. God can't, in my view, single-handedly stop those. Now, that's not saying that God is like watching us from a distance from the outside saying, you know, hey, Dan, it's your life. You live it. I'm not going to do anything. You know, I'm not getting involved here. I think God is always involved in all of our lives at all times. In fact, at all levels of complexity, from the most complex creatures like you and me down to the quarks, God is present and active throughout. But, and here's the key idea, God is never controlling. In fact, can't control in my view. So I like to say it like this. God's love is uncontrolled. And God loves everyone and everything. So God simply can't control anyone or anything. I've got some biblical passages I could bring in to support that and lots of other things I could say. But for the sake of time, I'm going to go to point number two. <laughs> the God who can't single-handedly prevent evil is, however, present with us in the midst of our suffering. This is a God who really feels our pain with us. This isn't a cold and distant monarch. This is a loving, present friend with us in all times and places. Now, this idea that God is with us in the midst of pain isn't all that radically different from probably what a lot of you have heard. But some people stop there and they'll just say, well, God suffers with us, but they don't address the question of why God didn't stop that suffering in the first place. And I've begun today by saying God can't single-handedly prevent evil. And now I'm saying the God who can't prevent evil suffers with us in the midst of it. That's a really important point, I think, from the perspective of many people who are harmed, are hurting, are suffering, are, are survivors, because to know that the God of the universe is present with them in that and is the God, as scripture says, of all consolation, who is feeling with us the difficulties we experience, that's a reassuring uh, notion. So point number one, God can't prevent evil single-handedly. 
Point number two, God suffers with us and feels our pain. Point number three, I think God tries to heal the brokenness and hurt that we experience. God is in the healing business. However, I don't think God can heal single-handedly, all alone. I think God works with us and all of creation moment by moment, trying to heal to the greatest extent possible. But God needs our cooperation, our bodily cooperation, our environmental cooperation, our social and societal cooperation, or in cases in which there's no cooperation possible, God needs the inanimate elements of creation to be conducive or aligned for the kind of healing God wants to do. And that means that sometimes healing just won't occur in this life. I happen to believe in an afterlife. And I think some healing must wait until then. But I don't think God has sort of a hands-off policy right now. I think God is engaged in working to heal to the greatest extent possible. But even God faces obstacles and challenges to the healing that God wants to do. So that's point number three. Point number four. I think God works with whatever happens in the world, including the suffering, harm, and hurting, the evil, and tries to squeeze something good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. I don't know about you, but I've many times heard people who've gone through a difficult time and then seen something positive happen after that difficult time, them say, well, God must have caused that bad thing or allowed that bad thing because God knew it was a part of a plan to get me to this good thing. In my view, God doesn't cause or even allow the evils of the world, but God doesn't give up. God works with us and others and the elements of creation to try to bring whatever good can be brought from the bad that God didn't want in the first place. That's point number four. And then finally, you and I have a role to play in overcoming evil. In fact, point five says this, God needs our cooperation to overcome evil in our lives, in our families, in our societies, in our world. God actually needs us to work in tandem for the kind of love God wants to uh, see happen in the world. This is an idea that is challenging to some people because a lot of people have thought of God as like, you know, hey, I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter what you do and I'm just going to make sure I get my way. The proposal I have on the table is that God is a relational God who seeks our cooperation, our partnership, our companionship. We are called to, as the Apostle Paul puts it, be fellow workers or co-workers with God. And in order for the good that God wants to see come in our lives and in the world, there has to be cooperation. God can't do it alone. So five big ideas. I'm sure you've got questions. Uh, maybe if we start there, we can go in whatever direction you all want to go. But I think those five ideas taken together actually give us a satisfactory answer to the big question of why a good and powerful God doesn't prevent 
the genuine evils in our lives and in the world? What kind of questions do you have to those radical proposals of why a good and powerful God simply can't prevent the genuine evils of the world? Uh, in the chat, uh, Steve Shu is asking, how is a God who can't, who can't still be said to be all-powerful? Mm, excellent question, Steve. Um, usually the word theologians use for this, actually there's three words that are common. One is omnipotent. Another one is sovereign. A third is almighty. These are words we hear. I use them. Other people use them. Often we don't carefully try to explain what we mean by them. If God being, the word I like is almighty. If God being almighty means that God has all the power and does all the work, I'm obviously rejecting that view because I'm saying we have to cooperate with God. But I don't think the Bible requires that kind of view. In fact, I think God is almighty in three different ways. First, God is mightier than all others. To quote the psalmist, God has no equals. Secondly, God exerts might or influence upon all others. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And third, God is the source of any kind of might we express in the world. In other words, God enables us to express power. But God can be almighty in those three senses and yet be uncontrolling and yet be unable to single-handedly prevent evil. So it all depends on what we mean by all-powerful, Steve, but that's what I find helpful. And I'd like to follow up on, on Steve's question and, and play a thought experiment. And you tell me if I'm really off base here. But <laughs> I was thinking of your, your, your concept of, of God's power in terms of Aristotle's fourfold understanding of causality. So Aristotle uh, um, says that there are four different elements, uh, four different types of causes in the world. There is a material cause, which is the the being, the stuff of the world, um, there uh, in this case that, that God would use to create. There's efficient causality, which is the, I think of it in terms of a chair, actually. So with a chair, the wood is the material cause. That's the stuff out of which the chair is made. The efficient cause would be the carpenter who puts the chair together, or in my case, the really bad carpenter who can't even put Ikea chairs together. Uh, <laughs> the third is the, uh, the, the the purpose of the of the thing. Uh, that's called the final cause. And then uh, you have the, what's the fourth? Formal, formal. Uh, formal cause. Yeah, that would be the blueprint, uh, the instructions, the IKEA instructions for how to put the chair together. And I think, Tom, in your case, what you may be arguing is that God is materially all powerful or at least close to that. Uh, but in terms of efficient causality, uh, God is uncontrolling. So God is not the agent that intervenes. Uh, because of God's nature uh, in the world directly, but at the same time, the stuff of the world, uh, I mean, this certainly works with Paul Tillich. I don't know if it works with your, with your thinking. Is that helpful, or do you prefer to explain God's almightiness in another way? I, I like that. I mean, as long as we don't think the materiality is God, if we think material, material cause is just God, then it seems we're kind of at a pantheism in which everything then becomes God. But I don't I reject that view. I'm a panentheist, but not a pantheist. But, yeah, I like that. I think God is a an efficient cause, but not the only efficient cause. 
I think as a formal cause, God invites and offers possibility, but those possibilities don't come as if God can pick and choose. So I like that uh, Aristotelian causation mode. Thanks. Hmm. I see Megan uh, and Jennifer. I'm actually losing track here. So <laughs> uh, Jerry Megan, says we should throw out the omni concepts. Jennifer says seems sensible. And Megan says, can you explain the miracles that Jesus performed? How can God not single handedly fix brokenness in our world and then cure people of sickness through Jesus? Fantastic question, Megan. Um, I think. The miracles Jesus did were not expressions of God's single-handed power. In fact, as I began to think through these issues and reading through my scripture, I became surprised, really, of how many things that I hadn't noticed previously. <laughs> For instance, um, when Jesus goes to his hometown, the scripture says he can't perform miracles because they don't have cooperative faith. Uh, so there seems to be something going on there in which they're not cooperating with the good that Jesus wants to do. And uh, you've probably noticed in lots of miracle stories in the New Testament, Jesus talks about the faith of the person. And unfortunately, that's sometimes been interpreted as, you know, only people with lots of faith get healed. And so if you're not healed of cancer, well, it's your problem because you didn't have enough faith. I don't think that's the best way to interpret that. I do, however, think that it's saying that we have some kind of role to play alongside of God. And sometimes we can be saying yes to God, yes to the miracles that God wants to do. But our bodily members, our cells, our organs, our muscles, or our social factors in our environment are not cooperating with God. And because we live in an interrelated universe then uh, we don't always get the healing we want, even though we're trying to say yes to God. But um, I'm going to sound like I'm plugging a book here uh, with your question. Oh, I forgot your name all of a sudden. Who was that again? Was that Jennifer? No, that was Megan. Megan. Megan, I'm going to, this is going to be bad, but um, in that Q&A book that Dan mentioned earlier, I've got a whole chapter on miracles. So if you want to dive into the details, get this book and read that chapter. This is from Reverend uh, Jerry, and he asks, why uh, why would we need to have a God who lives outside the bounds of mutuality? Yeah, I'm thinking that's a rhetorical question. So I think he's saying, yeah, we have to have a relational God. That makes the most sense. So, yeah, what Jerry's pointing to is is a deep insight in the view of God that I have of a God who is not the same as us. It's not, you know, we are not God. But God is intimately related and working mutually, to use Jerry's word, with us in creation. Thanks, Jerry. I don't see any other hands, so I'll, I wanted to ask a, another question. Uh, and I want to hold up a book. Uh, this is a, a wonderful book I've been reading called The Religious Philosophy, Philosophy of Simon Weil by a good friend of mine, Lisa McCullough, who I know uh, Tom knows. And I, I hold it up because Simon Weil, and we have this in, uh, in um, Kabbalah, mystical Judaism, has this notion of why God can't, right? That God, according to Simon Weil, uh, before creation, in order to make creation possible, created a, a space or a region within God's self because God was, of course, ever present, uh, all in all. 
But in order for something other than God to exist, God has to create this space and in a sense negate or, or annihilate that aspect of God for, for uh, the condition for the possibility of anything other than God to arise. And I, and I bring that up, Tom, because what I'm wondering is, do you have a corollary, corollary metaphysical um, uh, understanding of why God can't beyond your claim that God's nature is uncontrolling love? In other words, why is it that God can't besides the, the, the nature of God? Yeah, fundamentally, it is the nature of God for me, Dan, but the nature of God has implications that go in a wide variety of directions. So one of the ideas I assume that, that you mentioned that might be a contrast to Simone Weil is I assume that God has always been creating in relation to others. Now, I think God does that because God's nature is uncontrolling love, but uncontrolling love is creative. So one of the fundamental assumptions I have is God is a creator. Now, to say God is a creator, that probably strikes everybody in this conversation is like, duh. But I'm proposing God's creating has been ongoing everlastingly. God is a capital C creator, we might even say, because it's God, part of God's nature, God's essence to be creative. And most Christian theologians have had the view that at one time or another, God was existing all alone and said, you know, I think I'm going to make a world or a universe. Now, the reason God did that, theologians debate, but most theologians think that God was isolated and alone and decided to create voluntarily. I think God's nature is love and love is inherently creative. And therefore, God, since God is everlasting, God has always been creating. It's actually another chapter in that book that I mentioned earlier, but thanks for bringing that up, Dan. So essentially God, God and the universe are givens and this universe may have had a, a beginning, but, but there may be prior universes to this one. And in all of them, God is a given uh, that, that exists along with other actualities. And uh, so to talk about a kind of absolute uh, beginning uh, creation out of nothing, that is not the view you hold. That's correct. I don't believe in creation out of nothing. I don't think there's any biblical reason to accept that view. I don't think there's any scientific reason to accept that view. The strongest reason to accept creation out of nothing is that it's been the dominant view in Christianity since about the third or fourth century. But it's not the only view that's on the table, and I think it creates insurmountable problems for answering the questions of evil. Because if God can create out of nothing, God would seem to have that capacity all along. And then you would wonder why God didn't instantaneously create things out of nothing to stop the real genuine evils of the world. Yeah, here's a question from Stacy. Uh, your book works off the premise that God is all loving and love by its nature cannot be controlling. However, how do you come to the conclusion that God is all loving when atrocities like the flood and actions against the Egyptians occur? Excellent question, Stacy. Um, I think the majority of scripture points to a God who is perfectly loving, who loves everyone all the time. And I think the clearest revelation of this perfect love of God is in Jesus Christ. However, I think there are some passages of scripture that don't point to a loving God. Some passages of scripture go against the overall drift of scripture 
and portray God as unloving. You know, uh, killing all the Egyptians in the Red Sea might be an example of this. So what do I do with that? If I've got a claim that the majority of scripture portrays a loving God, but there are some stories and uh, ways of thinking about God that don't, then what do I do? Well, some theologians end up portraying God in such a way that I think God is kind of split personality, you know, nice on Thursdays, but beats the hell out of you on Fridays. Um, I don't want that kind of God. I don't think that's the overall drift of God. So what I do is I say sometimes the biblical writers got God wrong. Things happen in the world that they attributed to God, but they were wrong in their attribution. Now, this means that I think that sometimes scripture doesn't paint a perfect and accurate portrait of God. But notice that I'm saying that in light of what I think the overall drift of scripture is and in light of who Jesus reveals God to be. So it is true. I don't think the Bible presents a totally consistent picture of a loving God, but I think the majority paints a picture of a loving God, and I opt for the majority. There's a lot more I could say on that, but I think I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> I, I know I want you to keep going. There's so much more to say. Yeah, absolutely. We, you and I had this com part. Of, this was part of our conversation on a podcast we did recently where we talked about the book of Job. And in rereading that text, I realized again that that evil is attributed to God in, uh, at multiple points in the narrative. Uh, and that that would be a reflection, I think, of, of what you're saying, that there is that there are exceptions to the broad view, the broad view being that God loves, that God liberates, but that uh, along the way, uh, there are points where the biblical authors simply, presumably because of their own contextual limitations, uh, we are made in the image of God after all, um, uh, get it wrong. Yeah. Yep. yep. And um, interesting on the Job example, many, probably not all, but many times in which God is portrayed as unloving, it's Job's opponents who are portraying God as unloving. In other words, why should we think that his opponents get God right? Because they're the they're the ones who are uh, criticizing from the beginning. But anyway, right? Yeah, and uh, we've been uh, my confirmands. Uh, they they didn't like God's non-answer to Job. Job's asking a question of justice, and God says, "Well, I'm all powerful." He completely uh, uh, avoids Job's question. But I think what we all appreciated was that, at least in the final chapter, God says that Job's friends got it wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably, for me, one of the most important moments in that narrative is that even though we don't get an affirmative answer from God, we at least know what doesn't work uh, theologically. Uh, um, that's a great point. So we have a, a number of additional questions. Uh, this one, this is a great one uh, from Mike. Um if God can't, why pray? Or better yet, how do I pray to a God that can presto, change you, fix something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like those questions. So the first, uh, the, the second part of that, why pray to a God who can instantaneously fix something? I mean, that's really part of my own journey in wrestling with the prayer question. So most people I know think God can single-handedly fix whatever needs to be fixed in the world. And when we pray, sometimes our prayers somehow, I don't know, get God off his butt to do something or her butt or its butt. God gets motivated by our prayers. But if God can single-handedly fix things, 
without any contribution or anything we do, and if God is perfectly loving, why would God wait around for us to ask God to do something? Um, here's an illustration I like to use. Suppose I'm out at the local lake here with my daughters, and they're swimming out in the water. And uh, I look up, and one of my daughters is out, and she's starting to drown. And she's like flailing her arms. Now, suppose I have the capacity to jump in the lake and rescue her. But I say to myself, you know, I haven't heard her ask me to rescue her. She's not praying. She's not asking for my help here. And nobody else on the beach is asking either because they don't see what's going on. I think I'm just going to let her drown. No one would think I'm a loving father if I allowed my daughter to drown when I could rescue her. And yet lots of people think that God is loving and powerful and God could just fix things like that, even if we don't ask. And yet God doesn't do it all the time. So to give a positive spin on this or a positive uh, 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 approach to this. And again, this is another <laughs> another topic I uh, address in the Q&A book that we mentioned earlier. But I think prayer really has an effect on God. And I think we live in an interrelated universe such that our actions, including our prayers, have an effect on ourselves and others in our world. And third, and perhaps more important, mostly important, is God and us move moment by moment through time together. And God takes into God's own self everything that happens in one moment and uses it in the next moment. That means that our prayers in one moment can actually provide new opportunities, new avenues, new information for God to use in the next moment in our lives and in the world. So prayer actually makes a difference. It doesn't mean, <laughs> let me make sure this is clear, I'm not saying that our prayer in one moment guarantees the outcome in the next moment, because that would only be possible if God was controlling. But I am saying that what we do, our actions and life and our prayers in one moment, provide possibilities and opportunities for God in the next moment in God's ongoing loving interaction with all of creation. That's great. It, it looks like uh, I wasn't the only one uh, unwilling to let go of the, the issue of the Bible. And so we've got a couple <laughs> questions here that, that reflect that. I'll ask the one that Megan asks. She says, I've heard the Bible is divinely inspired. Is this true? If so, how can some writers get it wrong about God's character? Is this a follow up? Uh, another question on that wants to know if you recommend any books on this issue. Mm, yeah. So the books one. um Pete Enns talks about this in his popular book, How to Read the Bible or something like that. Some of you might have the correct title there. Um, I've edited a book actually that has three essays on this question of inspiration and inerrancy. Uh, that Bible, that book is called The Bible. Oh, boy, I forgot the name of that book. <laughs> I'll have to look at that up. <laughs> anyway, if you look at the word Bible in my name, you'll find it. Um, but back to the inspiration thing. I do believe the Bible is inspired, but saying that God inspired the Bible doesn't mean, at least in my perspective, this, that we have to think that the Bible is exactly what God intended. Um, many theologians talk about something like a dynamic view of inspiration, such that it's both God and creatures who then 
end up writing the text uh, of the scriptures. And so uh, inspiration, in my view, can't be a controlling action on God's part, but it is a necessary action to provide information, insights, etc., to the writers as they write. Um, so I do believe the Bible is inspired, but I don't think we have to mean that that it means it's inerrant and gets everything right. Wow, that's great. It seems to fit perfectly uh, with your your uh, overall concept that that it, there there is no such thing as a, an infallible Bible that presupposes that God is in control. Right, exactly. It's actually yeah. a view I had come to before I'd come to my idea that God can't control just by reading the Bible itself. I just thought I can't make sense of this Bible if, you know, if I see these things like here's a great example. In one particular book, I've forgotten which one now. It's a New Testament letter. The Apostle Paul says, I'm so glad when I was with you talking to the readers that I didn't baptize any of you. And then like two verses later, he says, oh, except Crispus and Gaius. And then like another uh, passage later, he says, oh, yeah. And then there were some others. So right there in the text, we have errors. Paul has a mistake. He has a, a memory problem. And mm -hmm. I thought to myself, hold on a second. I've got to take much more seriously the actual authors themselves if I'm going to make sense of the scriptures. Jim up there. Margard, is that a Yeah, name? Jim. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I was curious. Could you could you talk a little bit about, you know, in our approach to combating or, or, or as an anecdote to evil or pain, you know, we tend to think of it as in a unitized fashion rather than a communal fashion. Mm. It seems, you know, to what extent, I'm sure it's not an either or, but to what extent are we really called and is the most effective approach you know, the individual, we think of an individual with a pipeline to God versus the whole interactions of a community where the actions, you know, it's being much more powerful and much more effective. And, and, and certainly the Bible says something to this, particularly the Old Testament. I think. Could you, could you yeah. relate a little bit about that, about the I, unitized versus the communal or the corporate? Yeah, I, I like that question a lot. And as you said, it, sometimes it, it's not an either or, but sometimes there's a more emphasis upon the individual, more emphasis upon the community. And I, the way I make sense of that, Jim, is my fundamental assumption that we live in an interrelated universe. So in an interrelated universe, my pain is going to be felt by others. How far that extends depends on the circumstances, the environment, et cetera, my relationships. But in a relational universe in which we are fundamentally related not only to other people, but to other creatures and the world in which we live, and in a theology like mine that says God is relational, we're fundamentally related to God, then yes, pain is never entirely solitary. It may be most felt by us than others. And so people can empathize with us and feel our pain to a degree. But sometimes that pain extends wider into a wider community. I've seen this in my own life, especially in church communities who have some horrible thing happen and it affects the whole group, not just the one person to which it happened. So thanks so much for bringing that uh, into the conversation, Jim. Thank you, yeah. Um, okay, more questions in the feed. Um, Stacy has, uh, I, I won't read the whole thing. It's really quite, uh, it's personal and quite uh, beautiful. Thank you for sharing this, Stacy. If you want to read it, it's in the chat. Uh, but she asks, uh, raises the point about an afterlife. 
And, uh, and I wanted to, uh, to follow up on that uh, myself and, and ask you this. You talk in the, uh, that there, you say in the book, uh, and, and maybe not in God, God Can't Q&A, but in the original text, you say that there are good reasons to believe an afterlife can be better than the present. And I wonder if you could identify a couple of those reasons for, for us here today. Um, and, and what about the afterlife itself? Um, why do you believe in it? Yeah, great question. Um, deserves a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, for a long time in my life, was really skeptical about an afterlife, to be honest with you. I was a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but the whole afterlife thing, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I really buy into that. Um, I don't think you have to believe in an afterlife to be a Christian. But over time, I came to a place where I think it is more plausible than not that there's an afterlife. So notice that I'm saying plausible, that I'm not absolutely certain. <laughs> but here are the reasons why I think there's an afterlife. Um, first of all, Christians and scripture aren't the only ones to talk about life after death. Uh, other religious traditions talk about an afterlife or something like life after death. Now, within the Bible, you have a variety of images of what that's like. So there's not like a consistent afterlife theology in scripture. And also there's differences amongst other religions. But even some non-theistic or might even say atheistic uh, traditions talk about an afterlife. So it's just not the weird Christians who think there's life after death. There's lots of humans. Now, that doesn't prove anything, but I'm just saying, let's stand back here a second and think to ourselves, this notion of life after death is much bigger than just the Christian tradition. Uh, secondly, this is might be getting kind of wild and woo-woo for some of you, but um, this is what I actually think, so I'm going to go right after it. I think these near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences uh, tell us something true. They're empirical evidence we have to take into account. Some of the latest literature I've seen says that approximately 5% of people on the planet have had either a near-death experience in which their bodies seem to be dead, their heart stopped, and yet they have consciousness and then they come back and they talk about seeing the light or seeing other people or having warm feelings about something better. Uh, or they have something like an out-of-body experience. And this is more common amongst religious people like uh, even like um, uh, Buddhist monks talk about going outside of their bodies and seeing themselves from the outside or sensing themselves beyond their own bodies. Now, again, these aren't slam dunk kinds of things, but I think if we're going to take life seriously and if we're really empiricists, we're, we're scientists, we have to take everything. And that includes near-death experiences. And there are a ton of them, a ton of them. And it's not just wackos who seem to have them. Sometimes the people who are really skeptical about them end up having them. So um, I think that's part of the evidence I would take in building a case for why there could be life after death. One final point, and that is why it might be better. I've mentioned that some of the experiences of people in near-death experiences talk about a better experience. But I've also, and this I'm really getting out into speculative territory here, so... <laughs> Um, I think a lot of the pain we have half comes from our bodies. 
And while I'm not sure exactly what the afterlife experiences is like, I'm pretty confident I won't have the exact same body I have right now. And um, if not having these bodies is part of uh, what it means to live a better life, I can make good sense of that because of the pain that this body has given me in my 50 some years already. Mm. Wow. I can really relate to that as someone who suffers from chronic pain. I, I, I think that's, mm. I was wondering why I noticed that you did make that claim several times in your book that the afterlife would, uh, would be better. And now, now I know the reason for why you think that. Um, mm. Thank you. Uh, we have a couple of questions that I think are in the same ballpark. So I'll read, uh, I'll read both of them and then, uh, and then you decide. Uh, one is from Jackie. She says or asks, are God's possibilities through us or by God's actions? And then scrolling down, uh, um, Steve asks a terrific question. In your cooperative model of action in the world, what is God's part? You're hinting in a dozen ways that God is active in the material universe, but it's unclear so far what God actually does. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. let me start with possibilities and then I'll go to divine action. Sure. Possibilities. I think possibilities are emerge through the joint actions of God and creation, moment by moment. And I think because God can't control and loves everyone and everything, God in every moment presents these possibilities that have emerged from past moments in the present and then nudges us, calls us, lures us, persuades us, commands us. I mean, I can use all kinds of verbs here to choose amongst the best possibilities in each moment. So that's where possibilities come from and God's role in presenting them to us. The divine action question. Um, boy, I'm sounding like a broken record, but I got another chapter on this in this Q&A book. So, <laughs> um, but let me, let me, the problem with talking about God, at least for most Christians, Jews, and Muslims, is that they have believed, and I'm here with them on this, that God is an omnipresent spirit who can't be perceived by our five senses. So right now I'm standing up looking at you all through this computer, but right behind me is a window and there's a street outside my house. I can't look up right now and see God walking the dog in front of my house because God doesn't have a localized body. God is present, according to the theory of most Jews, Muslims and Christians, God is present to all creation as a spirit who can't be perceived by our five senses. So all that to say, now talking about what God does is going to be difficult because most of the ways we talk about doing things involves localized creatures, right? Whom we can see, taste, touch, sense, or smell. Or I got sense in there. I meant to say one of the other senses, but you get the idea. So what I and most people do is resort to philosophical language to talk about God's causal activity. So as an omnipresent spirit who can't be perceived by our five senses, I think God is a necessary but not sufficient cause. In other words, God is always acting but never controlling moment by moment throughout all creation all the time. Now, can I prove that? No. But... Part of that hypothesis is that God is also a God of love and goodness. And I can't make good sense out of the world in all the love and goodness that I do see, despite also the evil, without some kind of source or ground for that love. And to have a framework of an active God who is the source of love 
helps me make broad sense of the world as I know it and my own individual life? That's a big, big question. And I tried to, <laughs> I'm sure you have more questions beyond that, but thanks for letting me give it a shot. I saw one earlier uh, from Colin about Providence. Colin, would you like to ask that question directly? Would you please? I was just curious if, you know, God's co-suffering with us necessarily needs to be mutually exclusive with an idea of God as providential. No, I don't think it's mutually exclusive, it, but it is exclusive in some views of providence. <laughs> so um, there is a particular part of the Christian tradition and actually in Islam as well, in which it denies God is relational, denies that God is affected by us, denies that God is suffering. And in that model, of course, then if God's providential, you would have a God who doesn't suffer. I don't believe that. I think, in fact, it makes a lot more sense to think that God's providence is this giving and receiving moment by moment so that God in one moment knows the best way to respond based on what happened in the previous moment. And that previous moment affects God moment by moment. So, so providence, in my way of thinking, is a relational love that moves through time because God is a God who moves through time. Does that help or is that kind of the, the direction you're going, Colin? Or you want to follow up? That's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Colin. You're letting him off the hook. You sure you don't? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> no? Okay. I feel like that's a topic for another day. That's a whole other thing. Well, let me say one more thing then, Colin, just uh, for the sake of others who are a part of the conversation. Um I keep talking in my presentation about a God moment by moment giving and receiving. And for lots and lots of people, that makes a lot of sense. But for people who have studied the Christian tradition, they might know that a lot of the main thinkers in Christianity, Augustine, Aquinas, etc., they thought God was outside time. God doesn't experience time. And for them, God never responds to us because God has an outside time perspective. In fact, Anselm has these great lines about how God can't be compassionate because compassion requires responding and feeling to something that's happening. But God can't respond and feel because God is immutable, impassable and uh, timeless. I'm rejecting that view of God. I'm embracing the view that God moves through time with us moment by moment. I think this fits the scriptures much better than the classic, we'll call it the classic Christian view of a timeless God. Uh, but because of that, sometimes questions about providence that, that you have asked, my view seems at odds with the providence of, let's say, a John Calvin. Well, I am a Barthian, so there you go. Well, well, well Carl Bart had some uh, suffering God elements. Of course, he had mm -hmm. lots of elements, so it's hard to systemize. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't characterize Bart as a, as, as a Calvinist classically. In, in no, some, no. Yeah, especially in his doctrine of God. But um, uh, just as a follow-up, Colin wouldn't push back, but Steve, it, it seems, might be. And I want to read this so yeah. that we can get your reaction. He says, so God is always acting, quote unquote, in the world, but has no effect on our physical, mental or emotional uh, worlds. Is that correct? Is that what you what you say? That's not what I'm saying. That's not okay. what I'm saying. I think God always has an effect on all dimensions of reality. But that effect is never the only influence, the only cause. 
God, that's what part of what I mean by uncontrolling. Not only that, I think this omnipresent spirit whom we call God, who has an effect on all things at all times, is also not always perceived by us. So um, I think the mental thing might be easier than the physical thing. Uh, but uh, we oftentimes talk about, we use language in our tradition that I have an intuition that I ought to do something. Or we say, I feel called by the spirit to do this. Or, uh, and, and sometimes that just may, might be bad pizza. So we're not sure exactly, you know, if this call, this feeling we have inside is God. But those are ways of talking about God's real influence that lots of Christians uh, recognize. Great. Uh, here's a question from Reverend Jerry, and, and he's now putting in some cases, uh, uh, this is rhetorical, so thank you, uh, Reverend Jerry. <laughs> Appreciate that clarification. It's hard to tell uh, in, in print here. But he, uh, he asks, do you have any models of prayer that you utilize, which are inspired by ORT, which I assume means open and relational theologies? Is that oh, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do a um, I do a variety of prayer models, but probably the one that's most common is a kind of breathing prayer in which I symbolically breathe in God. So I I'll take a deep breath. I'll say, and as I'm breathing in, I'm just imagining God's love filling me. Uh, it's symbolic, metaphorical. I think God's present everywhere, so it's not like you know God is just entering me as I breathe in, but it's. It's a way for me to consciously and intentionally uh, imagine God acting first and filling me, empowering me. And then I breathe out. <sighs> and when I begin this practice, I do it most days. When I'm breathing out, usually I'm thinking about being a loving person today. And so I'll breathe in God. I'll breathe out love. And after I do that a few times, then I'll start thinking about my particular day and the interactions I have, some of the problems I'm facing emotionally or with my family or with my work. And that kind of practice of breathing in God and then breathing out helps me to set my intentions to use a kind of more contemporary way of how I want to love moment by moment. And that fits then with this idea that God acts and we respond moment by moment, the breathing in, the breathing out. Uh, that it's interesting because it seems like your 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 uh, devotional practice there reflects your metaphysic. That, that God, <laughs> is that right? That they got right. breathing in each moment and then exhaling new possibilities. Correct. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, I yeah. really. Uh, I want to join my theology and my practice, Dan. Uh, and it's strange how sometimes a theologian can get a theology that makes a lot of sense, but they have practices. Sometimes they pick them up when they were a kid like me. And um, they then they say, hold on a second. If I really believe this, then I ought to live and practice differently. So I'm always in the business of trying to unite those two things. Uh, here's another uh, uh, claim. It's, it may not be a pushback uh, to you, but I'd love to hear you respond. And Jim says, of course, we can both be in time and outside of time, uh, or, or God can be both inside and outside of time. Don't put limits on God. But it seems to me that your whole point is that God put limits on God or, or something like that. Would you respond to, to Jim's comment here? Yeah, that's a great. My theology has real limits on God. Now, that may sound really strange to you, Jim, but I am not the first to do that. Nearly every Christian theologian in history has said things like, 
God can't do what is logically impossible, which is sounds like placing a limit on God. Um, or they've said things like this. God can't contradict God's own nature. Again, that seems like a limitation. Um, when I say that God experiences time like we do, I don't think of it as a limitation. I guess if you begin with the, the notion God is timeless, you might think is a limitation. But if you reverse that and you think, well, if God is timeless, then God can't experience moment by moment, then being a timeless God would be a limit. Hmm. But you're seeming to propose the idea that God is both timeless and experiences time. Um, I can go up a portion of the way with you, Jim, in this sense. I think God's nature is timeless. So God's nature is unaffected by what happens moment by moment. But I think God's experience is giving and receiving, timeful, et cetera. Um, so that's, I'm not sure exactly if that's exactly what you have in mind, Jim, but that's, uh, that's how I think about it. Okay, we have just a few minutes left. We have a number of additional questions. I'll just pick one uh, from somebody who hasn't uh, asked one yet, or at least that I've shared. Here's one from Nancy. She asks, how does God protect us? And how are we blessed? Yeah, well, protection is one of the things that I've struggled a lot with, Nancy, because uh, I've prayed a lot of prayers asking God to protect and things haven't worked out so well. So what am I going to do with that? Uh, I used to be a youth pastor and the first church I was a youth pastor in, we had this uh, ritual in which someone would pray for our bus <laughs> and almost everyone would pray that the bus didn't break down. And we broke down a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, what do you do with that? To make it more serious, what do you do when you pray that God protects your children and then one of them dies in a traffic accident? Um, what do you do there? Well, I think God does want to uh, protect. But... I think God requires cooperation for this kind of protection. Sometimes that means us being wise in how we act. When I'm out hiking like I was yesterday in the wilderness, uh, part of God's protecting me is me not making foolish decisions when I'm hiking along a river. But also sometimes God is calling us to protect others. And I think that's a message we need to hear today. There are lots of people who are vulnerable and hurting, and God is calling us to be God's hands and feet, metaphorically, to protect those. So that's the way I think God wants to protect, through using God's creation. To honor our, 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 our own limits here, uh, I want to bring us uh, to a close, but I, I want to ask one final question just for clarification. And this goes back to the, the reference that was made to open and relational theologies. Just as we take uh, a broad view kind of leaving why do you uh, identify as an open and relational theist versus, say, a process theologian, given the fact that there seems to be so much overlap between these two schools of thought? Yeah, for me, open and relational theology is kind of an umbrella under which process theology is one option amongst other options. Sometimes okay. I call it classical the open theism. Uh, feminist thought. There's lots of varieties of things under this umbrella. So that's part of the reason I like open and relational. It's a little more broad in general. Um, and also, I've noticed that over time that process theologians have differences amongst themselves on these ideas. So there's not like one consistent process theology. 
Um, so I like personally to pick and choose those things I think are helpful, weave them together in a coherent and consistent way. And uh, that ends up kind of putting me not in any camp perfectly, but it does put me under this open and relational umbrella. If you just want to Google Center for Open and Relational Theology, you can get a whole lot more information. And so, okay. And so that website gives more information about the degree programs that, that uh, you're That's in- true. Okay. Very yep. good. Uh, well, Reverend uh, Jerry puts it well. He says, um, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, Thank you for being so awesome, Tom. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. We were delighted to uh, to have you with us today. Uh, you can find out more information about uh, the work that Tom's doing on the website that, that he mentioned. You can find out more information about uh, future God Talks, as well as additional uh, educational programming that we have at Queen Anne Lutheran just by going to queenannelutheran.org. We are delighted to see everyone here today, and we thank you for these wonderful questions. And thank you, Tom, for a truly great presentation. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for making it possible, Dan. Uh, Again, thank you, Tom. And thank you, everyone here. Uh, This has been a real delight. All the best. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.